and welcome to We Are History, etc., etc. It says an Angela's notes. Um, <laughs> this week, Angela's got a script on their notes. Their notes, their notes. I know. We're actually. I thought we, you could wing it, but we, you know. <laughs> Angela and I, since we started recording these in Zoom, we never actually get to meet up. But I've bought some yeah. tickets based on a previous uh, We Are History episode. I'm taking Very Angela. Excited to the Operation Mincemeat musical at the Southwark Playhouse. I'm so excited to see it. But, John, what you have done um, <laughs> is you book, you book three tickets. And, and, you know, lovely, lovely gesture. Really, But what you've done is you have booked tickets for you and your lovely wife, Jackie, yeah. and me yeah. to go to Operation Mincemeat. Now, as if I wasn't already feeling a bit of a third wheel in that equation... You have bought tickets for Valentine's Day, haven't you, John? You're married now. Valentine's Day doesn't I mean, this is anymore. my first Valentine's Day as a married woman, that's why, and I'm spending it with you and your wife. That's why you can forget all about it. It's not a thing. It's not a thing anymore. No, you know what Jack and I are like. We, oh, love you, love you, all yeah, the way you'll through. Yeah, you'll be snogging all night. It'll be, be disgusting. <laughs> I'm dreading it. <laughs> so, yes. I'm, I'm just, I'll just really laugh if anyone thinks I'm your daughter. <laughs> yeah, they, <laughs> Take, they won't think yeah. I'm Jackie's daughter. They might think we're yours. <laughs> Your sister, it'll be like John O'Farrell takes his wife and his podcast other half to the theatre. <laughs> That's it. His podcast Partner. wife. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, no, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. It should be fun. Yeah. I've heard good things. Oh, speaking of husbands, well, mine's just bring me in a cup of coffee. What, a, what a supportive Thank partners we much. have. Oh, been, how lovely. I've been showing, uh, I've been showing He's the... Uh, hello. <laughs> I've been showing Angela the... Uh, shortbread millionaire shortbread that uh, Jackie's made you it's that. really cruel because we're doing uh, this on Zoom mm. and John's eating stop it <laughs> this, people will hate that people hate food uh, eating noises on, on the audio yeah 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 alright well since I've got a full but, um, mouth you tell us what you've chosen <laughs> I've, I've really enjoyed this one John um, yeah it's fascinating so yeah today we are talking about uh, lady detectives now, very specifically, lady detectives of the early 20th century. Um, so I became aware recently that sort of long before women were allowed to join the police force, there were these private lady detectives that were. A thing. I had no idea so, they were a thing, if I'm honest. I would never I would have thought it was like the stuff of fiction. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, we'll come on to that very much related to it. But we're going to mainly focus on the sort of early 1900s Edwardians through to the to World War Two, really. But. Um, detectives, as we sort of think of them today, they were first really in the public consciousness in the 1800s. So you had Conan Doyle, you know, was writing about Sherlock Holmes. Yes. And then, of course, you had in the 1900s, the golden age of detective fiction, which was sort of 1920s and 30s, where you had G.K. Chesterton, Dorothy L. Sayers, yeah. Agatha Christie, et cetera, et cetera. And um, in 1930, a group of these writers, they formed what was called the Detection Club, right? These yeah. writers would get together and they would share stories. And so in this early 20th century period, detective stories were really fashionable. Right. People loved them. Right. Now, I personally was never a big reader of Agatha Christie. I've no, no, I don't think I've ever read an Agatha Christie. Me but neither. I used to love watching Miss Marple on the telly. I yeah. think Joan Hickson was great. You know, and I used to love watching those. I always felt with Agatha Christie, it's always like... Oh, who did it? Who did it? And it's like, oh, we didn't tell you about this uh, murderer in the cupboard. It's like, well, that's easy. That's just like... Yeah, yeah give us all the information. <laughs> it's like, um, <laughs> and the uh, secret murder was this Nazi spy under the floorboards. Well, you never mentioned that <laughs> Wait before. Wait a minute. But no, I mean, I get that uh, Miss Marple is incredibly popular. I mean, is she yeah. based? Is there a real one? Is she based on something? Well, this this is... Because I, I can remember watching it and just thinking, how how has this little old lady got into this do you know what I mean why why are they phoning Miss Marple when the police would do, you know <laughs> yeah. I, I never really and so 
Were there real Miss Marples? You said, well, we'll go back again a bit. Oh, we'll go further back now. We start, you, I was quite encouraged when you said we're going back to Conan Doyle. <laughs> the first ever sort of municipal police department um, was in Paris in 1667. But the concept of the detective, as we think about it, was really a 19th century thing. So the first ever private detective agency was also set up in Paris. Well, that's the, that's um, the criminals. It's the French. <laughs> Here we go with John and his anti-French sentiment again. Or maybe they were just more sophisticated, John, uh, when is, it came to the law. I must, you know, I must criminality. tell my, the listeners, this is a joke. My, my anti-French <laughs> prejudice is a joke. Yes, yes, he's not really anti-French. He loves a croissant. I love a so croissant. See, some, he loves a croissant. Some of my best friends are French. <laughs> yeah. um, no, no, it's so, a fact, the idea that they had more criminals or very slack standards, that's just who, That's just a joke. right? That's just John being silly. Just a humorous, um, humorous aside. <laughs> <laughs> so the first private detective that we know of uh, was a man called Eugene Francois Vidoc in 1833. Um, now, he also happened to have, in his past, been quite the criminal. Ah. So who better to catch criminals? Good way round. criminal, right? And Vidoc is sort of known now as the father of modern criminology. Um, so he was the first sort of detective as we sort of think of them now. Uh, the Bow Street Runners, you heard of them, John? I have. They were the first official police force in London. So they preceded the Met Police um, and they came about in 1789. The Met uh, was formed in 1829. By Robert Peel. <coughs> By Robert Did Peel, I I Peelers. Men- Maybe I mentioned it in a former podcast, but my dad used to say Peelers. Isn't that weird? Yeah, you said that, yeah. that sort of still... Still carried on. I think it was the Irish thing. Century. I think it might be an Irish thing, but... Oh, go, right, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, no, the Peelers are here. It's like, Dad, what's... <laughs> In Victorian times. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't Robert Peel die in 1850 or something? <laughs> did, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in yeah. the run-up to the Great Exhibition. Very good. Yeah. Listen to that episode. Yes, yeah. there we I go. You've got a good memory. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, we recorded that a whole two weeks ago and I remembered. <laughs> um, so around this time, b- private detective agencies began to spring up in the UK around eight- the 1850s. And in America, there was a very famous detective agency called the Pinkerton Agency, which started in 1850 by a Scotsman uh, whose name was Alan Pinkerton. He was also an abolitionist and a spy. And then so I think the detective agencies that then began to spring up here sort of modelled on that I see. But, Pinkerton agency that he'd started. But these were all the boys. These were the boys. What about how come ladies got in the scene? Because you think how little agency women had back then. So when did when did yeah. the old fashioned Cagney and Lacey come to the scene? Well, as you say, it was, a, it was a, a very much a men's domain to start with. And often these agencies would be run by retired Met officers. And it's thought that they did employ a lot of women. But the thing about being a detective, John, yeah. is that, you know, you've got to go under the radar a little bit. Because a lot of their job was, you know, shadowing people, as they called right. it, or stalking people, following people, whatever. So the records were quite scarce, really, because anonymity... <laughs> big benefit to a detective so it's thought there were actually quite a lot of women who worked for these detective agencies uh, during the victorian period and we know of two don't we that set up their own detective agencies in the early 20th century in britain so that's right first 1905 kate easton an ex-actress tell me about her actually yeah so she set up her own detective agency she like you say was an ex-actress and and a lot of female detectives at the time it's thought had been actresses and then when they sort of retired you know they got past it john it's like it is now oh, get into your 40s they don't want no, to cast you. you're off yeah so um this is quite inspiring for me because i'm 45 now so you know i'm gonna you're set up as a private detective now i can't 
only just by the skin of my teeth, John. But um, it was thought actresses, you know, they were used to the art of disguise. They could uh, blend in. Although, for what I know of actresses, John, they're not great when it comes to not drawing attention to themselves. But maybe <laughs> exactly. that's just some of the ones that for, I've met. For every detective <laughs> agency, there was a woman detective. There's another one for six going, should be me up there. I, exactly. you know, I went for that. They wouldn't have me. Oh, she slept with a head detective. We know that. <laughs> And it's really interesting. Some of the stuff I read, like disguise was really fashionable at the time mm-hmm. um, in a way that, you know, we have fancy dress parties now, but they were really into it, the Edwardians. And it was quite a phenomenon. Um, and, you know, I think because you had very set sort of classes and things, people could dress up as other. Yeah, like you yeah. had people dressing as a different gender was seen to be hilarious. You had in Brighton, here in Brighton, you have Vesta Tilly, who's still well known, you know, today. And she would draw crowds with this drag act that she did where she um, dressed up as a man and she she would do songs and sketches and, uh, yeah, Yeah, male characters, quite morally dubious characters. So I'm doing auditions Um, for Mrs. Doubtfire this afternoon. So it's it's still hilarious. Oh, yes, you are. It's still still hilarious. Still hilarious. hilarious. So I think at that time when class structure was so obvious, you know, and it was obvious by looking at someone exactly where they belonged in society, much more than it is today. It was somehow easier to adopt the guise of someone else. So you had these detectives dressing as maids or right. dressing as fine ladies in all, you know, depending on what their particular yeah, yeah. job was. And so this if you ability be, to disguise. Yeah, if you want to be invisible in those days, be a woman. I mean, that's... that's Exactly. Yeah, so, because, um, you know, if you if you look like a, a man with a twirly moustache and a top hat, you're going to get noticed. If you're some lower class yeah. woman, people are going to just go barge past you and not notice that you're being... Exactly. That she's following you or whatever. Or she's exactly. Following. So we had Kate Easton, ex-actress, sets up her detective agency. Yeah, but you've read a book about the other one, haven't you, Angela? You've read about yeah. Maud West. Tell me about Maud West. So, for this episode, I have read a book by Susanna Stapleton, right. which is called The Adventures of Maud West, Lady Detective. Um, now, Susanna Stapleton does point out in her book, by the way, that it's a real shame that Kate and Maud didn't run an agency together because they could have been called East and West. Oh, they'll make a series out of it, I'm sure. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, but I really urge listeners, like, if, if this topic, as we go through interest, you read the book because... The way Susanna Stapleton has read it, she really had to work to get the details wow. of Maud's life and, and how her life is fascinating. And there's only so much we can really yeah. uncover today. I will say, actually, today. Angela, when we, you say, we always say that on the podcast, read the book. Mm. And people do. It's amazing. People go, mm. I'm so glad you said that. I read the book on Maxwell or whatever, and it was brilliant. And, um, it's great. So it's great. I really love it when people do I read the book. I saw somebody on Twitter ask for a bit of a reading list the other day, and I sort of racked my brains trying to remember which ones yeah. were, you know... And um, but this is I really enjoyed this book because Susanna Stapleton is a historian, but she also was really into these detective novels, yeah. you know, uh, growing up. And it and you can really tell because the way she's written it as if she's a detective uncovering this mystery. Right. And it's yeah. it's really lovely. And, you know, it's no easy task for her to uncover Maud West's life. Yeah, and, yeah. and this book is also throughout it is Maud's own writing, uh, which, as you'll see as we go on, is. Let, let's say it's a slightly enhanced version. So there's a certain amount of fiction in did. that as well, then. There, there is, and so you know, we. I, I also don't want to give too many spoilers about certain things okay. because it's fascinating. Okay. So, so, so where was read the book? Where was more? Anyway, where was more based? She had her offices um, at a place uh, called Albion House in London. Okay. Now, she did also refer to a Paris office actually, which I think Susanna Stapleton originally, when she was sort of digging around, thought was one of her fabrications, of which there were many. Um, but it does appear that she she found something with an address of her Paris wow. 
uh, office on it. So it appears at some point she may have had a Paris office. Um, but Albion House is quite interesting. So it's a large building in uh, London, I think sort of St. Giles area, Holborn, around that okay. sort of way. And um, so not not a million miles from Baker Street, you know, the press of the time loved making the, you know, the yeah, Lady Sherlock Holmes right, yeah, houses yeah, yeah. and all that. And Albion House, it was a large building and it had a Rover car showroom on the ground floor. Great so cover, big great sort cover. Of windows on the, yeah. And inside it were lots of offices and there were lots of theatrical agents okay. in the building. You had the Music Hall Ladies Guilds were based in that building. And it just seems like the further up the building you go, oh, yeah. the smaller and more dodgy these businesses I've were. I've been in those buildings. Right? So, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, as you go to the top oh, yeah. floor, no, it's so, just like, uh, my, my, the bloke who's going to represent me is on the top floor, you know. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, great. <laughs> yeah. And there were a lot of sort of snake oil salesmen peddling their wares, you know, Dr. Pepper's, oh, no, not that's Dr. Thing, Pepper. Dr. Pepper. <laughs> not Dr. Pepper, but, you know, lots of these yeah. kind of, and there was one office, John, yes. where there was a seller of dental equipment okay. who was in the same block, and he was a certain Dr. Hawley Harvey Crippen. Dr. Crippen was in the same building. Dr. Crippen had his office in the same building. And the wife that he murdered right. was a member of the aforementioned Music Hall Ladies Guild, because she was a, a performer, which was also did based Ma- in the did same Maud building. Did Maud catch him? No. She- <laughs> I mean, his accomplice was his secretary as well. But Maud just... She was like, uh, morning, Mr. Being Cri- a lady morning, 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 Dr. Crippen. Oh, yeah. How's that plastering <laughs> of your house going? Yeah, exactly. How's the new she, All this happened under her nose. Not, not a thing, oh, as God, far as we yeah. know. As far as we know. She may have had, you she know, she just wasn't involved him. in it. Criminal investigation. We don't know what she thought of him. But I just think it's quite funny that there's this lady detective walking, working in the same building. Not really her fault, but, you know, it's sort of weird, yeah. isn't it? One of the most famous criminals of all time. Yeah. So from what I gather, uh, Maud sort of presented herself as a slightly ordinary middle-aged woman, which, as I was saying earlier, it's probably the, in those days the way of, to be invisible. Um, yeah. Photographs of her and, and you wouldn't really notice anything about her. Uh, which is ideal for a detective, really. Yeah. However, Maud was also this incredible self-publicist. She used to write stories for journals and periodicals um, for things like Pearson's Weekly or whatever. And um, she'd write about her life as a lady detective. She was famous at the time as being Maud West lady detective. You know, full of daring do, close shaves with armed foreign gentlemen and all these sorts of stories. And she would submit these photographs to these publications of herself, but often in disguise. She'd be in disguise as a man. Yes. She, in 1936, she said, Generally, I start off as myself because few wrongdoers suspect a middle-aged woman to be on their tracks. She admitted, but most of my successes as a detective is due to the fact I do not look like one. So, exactly. yeah, that's what we're saying, isn't it? But I love the yeah. fact that she was... This uh, had to be invisible. And yet all her instincts were, look at me, look at me, look at me. Look at me, look at me. Exactly. I mean, yeah. at, at one point, Susanna Stapleton did wonder whether she had a background as an actress. Don't think she did. But right. it, it, she certainly presented as somebody who was quite happy to be in the spotlight. And um, she she would offer these tips for when she needed to change appearance. They really made me laugh. This one did. It's, Sometimes I alter the shape of my face merely by pushing a piece of orange peel beneath my upper lip. Well, that's clever, isn't it? <laughs> I've never heard of that one. Isn't it? It's great. And so I imagine that she had to sort of be prepared to defend herself when she was working in the gambling dens oh. or illicit night spots and stuff like that. Exactly. There's and, and uh, sort of getting the truth and non-truth of right. Maud's life is quite difficult. So there were lots of newspaper reports, lots of stories that she wrote. Yeah. Some of them based in truth, some of them 
exactly that stories right. to get attention um but she did she wrote this uh, about you know being equipped as a lady detective yes. she said uh, i never doubted the efficiency of a small but very useful revolver oh or a certain dress ornament which contained a tiny but spiteful stiletto wow. furthermore i always carried on a bangle two detachable beads composed of a soluble narcotic with these i could promptly dope the drink of any too embarrassing suitor wow. On one occasion only did I find it necessary to lose one of my bangle beads. My armoury, I'm glad to say, was never in action. Wow, Presumably, if you were a lady detective, you would have to have some element of self-defence. Yeah, a revolver you... and a knife and a... It's like, yeah, okay. the, the things that actually happened to her may have not been quite as she described, but she'd certainly be in places where a lady might yes. be in danger. Yeah, yeah. You, know. you sort of get the feeling that most of this needs to be taken with a pinch of salt, though. Most of the stories she wrote about herself, mm. which is always a problem with history, I suppose. She wrote her own history yeah. and, and was uh, bigging yeah. up her own stories. The stories she yeah. wrote and the interviews she gave were sort of really designed to titillate and excite, I suppose, weren't they? Yeah, exactly. I mean, she certainly kept a revolver in her desk. And there's a, a, a sort of postscript in the story where Susanna is able to meet some of her still living relatives who remember her sort of waving a revolver Wow, about. okay. Um, you know, but she, Susanna Stapleton doesn't think that Maud ever used it. She thinks it's quite unlikely that she ever used it. And her day-to-day -day work at the agency was probably much more mundane than right. the stories. So if it was mundane, would, what, was, what, does it, yeah. what does an Edwardian lady detective do? Well, firstly, John, I think to start with, the big jobs were the matrimony work. The matrimony. Right? There was a lot of, you know, it's a different time, John, as we're <laughs> going to say. Um, women... Though, in the, certainly in the early 1900s, we're beginning to get a bit more independence. They could travel without a male escort by bicycle. Ah, oh, I know a podcast about that, Angela. Yeah, right. so we talked about how suddenly women had this freedom to go places without being escorted by a man. Yeah. They had their own mode of transport. And women were in a position to then meet other ladies out and about in town in a way they'd never been before. They always had to have a male escort before. Yeah. And the problem was, as women were starting to meet each other socially in this way... Uh, one of the problems was nowhere had toilets for ladies, no public places. But one place that did was department stores. Ah. So these ladies would gather and have their lunch in department stores and places like that. Now, the, there's a danger, John, isn't there, of ladies being out on their own oh, without oh, their parents or without absolutely. male escort. Yes. Um, they could become acquainted with men dun, dun, dun. out on their travels. That's terrible. Yeah. We're yeah. talking about, um, of course, middle and upper class ladies, a different rule for the working classes. Um, yeah. See our marriage uh, episode again, I suppose. Um, yeah, yeah, we do talk about a lot of this stuff in the episode yeah. about the history of marriage and how actually it's very much, as it's written about, you know, the, the propriety of marriage is very much for the middle yeah. and upper classes. Yeah. Working classes were just sort of getting on with it and breeding yeah. and doing whatever, you know. There'll be a point when, um, when, when, when our podcast, one of these podcasts, is just us telling people to listen to all the other podcasts. To listen to other podcasts, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the danger of these ladies getting together was they could be in a situation where they could become engaged to a gentleman without their parents having introduced them or yes. even having their parents meet their suitors, you know. So the parents would suddenly might be in a situation where they had no say in who their daughters ooh, ooh. were becoming engaged to. I know what they could do. They could get a lady detective to furnish yes. them with information that they wanted. Exactly. So... Part of Maud's and her, like, part of their job would be these sort of pre-matrimony checks. Yeah. Um, they would look into the past of the man. So if your daughter had become engaged to a man that you knew nothing about, you could hire a detective to go and question his family, look into his past, maybe follow him, make sure he didn't have a wife popped away somewhere. Yeah. You know, just to check everything was yeah. legit. There's another way of doing this, of course, is that when my, my daughter started going out with a boy... Uh, is to a young man really uh, is to uh, have a um, pandemic and then to move in for a year. That's another. Yeah. Way to, 
that's another way to find out about it. And then for it all to split up after the end of the pandemic. That's always sad. Lovely Steve. We love him. I should tell, there's a story about when I, oh God, I was in my early 20s, I think. And I, I lived for a while with my auntie and uncle. Oh, did you? And my uncle Mike, who passed away last year, oh. sadly, who was a great, my uncle Mike. Lovely, gentle, quiet man. And one of these men who... Didn't say much, but when he did, it was always funny right. and always, you know, just very sort of dry. And he, they had this uh, guy who was at their lodger, right? And he was actually, he was a singer in my cousin's band. Wow. And I'd, I'd moved in with my auntie and uncle and this lodger had come to stay. Mm -hmm. Well, he'd come to stay there for a couple of, and ended up being their lodger for about six months. And um, me and the, and I think he listens to this podcast, so hello, Jez, if you're listening. But um, we started going out, right? Right, you would uh, But we sort of kept it quiet for a bit for my auntie and uncle because we were both under their, we were both sort yeah, of their lodgers, yeah, yeah. essentially. We sort of, and eventually it sort of came out that we were having this fling, you know. And my auntie and uncle were fine, absolutely fine about it. They're very laid back, kind of. Yeah. But my uncle just, I, I remember coming home one day with Jez and my auntie just whispered to me, she went, Mike's going to have a bit of fun, watch this. And uh, she took, they took, uh, Mike just went, Jez, can I have a word? Sort of took him into the living room. My auntie was like, watch, watch this. It's going to be really funny. So me and my auntie were watching for a crack at the door. And uh, Mike just went, sit down, Jeremy. Called him Jeremy, right? So uh. Jez is like, oh, shit. And were, the thing you have to understand about our family, Jeremy, is um, in our family, there were seven boys were born. And then a very special little girl came along. <laughs> right? Which is because I'm the yeah, first yeah. girl. Oh, I have right. seven cousins. Wow, wow, boy, wow. First, and then there were another seven yeah. boys before there was another girl, right? Yeah. So I did have these sort of yeah, protectors. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, yeah, those seven boys, Jeremy, they, they look after that little girl. <laughs> so just be warned. And poor Jeremy, like the colour just I was drained say, from his face. You've, 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 you've shared a bed with her, now you've got to marry her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was really funny. Oh, and nice. actually, do you know what? We, you know, my poor auntie and uncle probably went, you know, we were conducting this relationship in their house. It was, um, yeah, yeah, yeah they probably didn't yeah. really want to think about their lovely little niece in that way. But anyway, completely digressed, but that Michael, just always makes me laugh, that well, story. In those days, um, in those days, there was yeah. no way to find out about gentlemen suitors if they were sort of not exactly. with a chaperone, unless you had mm. Maud West. Maud Snoopy, West on the case. Snoopy nosy lady. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, um, so that was part of the detective's work then. Yeah. And then there's sort of other matrimonial work would might be, uh, I suppose, uncovering adultery, maybe, or wrongdoing yeah. for the purposes of divorce. Because, of course, back then you needed a reason for a divorce. Exactly. So you had the matrimonial court match. I'll say that again. You had the Matrimonial Causes Act of 1857. We know a podcast about that, yep. um, which meant women could petition for divorce for the first time in the civil courts. Now, there was still a lot of disparity because while a man could get a divorce on the grounds of adultery alone, yeah. uh, because it was seen that women committing adultery was much more of a sin than men committing adultery because poor men can't help themselves, poor lambs, right, you know. Okay. Uh, so it's natural. Whereas it's natural. women... It's like, it's like in the wilderness. It's like the exactly. animal. Exactly. So, you know, you can't leave him just because he's done what's natural. I love it. Uh, so in order for a woman to get a divorce, they also had to prove that something else was going on in their marriage, incest, cruelty, bigamy or desertion. It couldn't just be enough that they were just unhappy in a marriage or right. their husband was just an arsehole. Difficult times, difficult times. Yeah. It, this changed, didn't it, in 1923? And then women yep. could just get a divorce on grounds of adultery. There still needed a lot of proof, though, didn't it? It still had to be proved. So that's, yeah. I suppose, a lot of work for female detectives. Exactly. So for the first time in 1923, now women could petition for divorce on grounds of adultery. Uh, a couple of things happened. For the first time, the number of women petitioning for divorce overtook the number of men. Right. And it's always stayed that way. It's now always wow. more men than women that initiate the, the procedure. Sorry, the other way around. Procedure. More women than men, you mean? Sorry, more, more women, women than, men, than men. Did I say more yeah, men yeah. than women? You more did. women than men. Oh, got that wrong. Well, you know what I mean. I did. Um, so because adultery was now a reason for divorce for women, 
one of the ways the detectives uh, were sort of employed by these women was a to sort of go out and and shadow a man, see if he was up to anything. Yeah. But also, they might be employed to if a woman was just unhappy in her marriage. Right. She knew that if she could somehow prove adultery, or, she could get out of it. Or create so adultery. They, or create adulteries. They might set up honey traps. Ooh, um, not, this is a bit dodgy know. now. I'm not sure I'm on the woman's exactly, side. Exactly. Exactly. There's <laughs> one case where Maud, uh, and this goes into more detail in the book, but she even stitched up her own chimney sweep in order to make it look like a client's wife was having an affair. So she Money. made it look like, uh, you know, the chimney sweep was it. This poor boy just got, what? I'm just here to clean a chimney. Oh, my God. Yeah. So she wasn't always more. She, there was some moral... moral. Yeah. ambiguity with Maud West, shall we say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then after World War One, matrimonial work sort of included bringing down unscrupulous matrimonial agencies, didn't it? There's a yeah. dearth of uh, eligible young men at the end of the war. If you think nearly a million young men died mm. in World War One, and so there were all these unmarried women looking for husbands and hoping yeah. desperate to improve their situations. And these matrimonial agencies yeah. sprung up and fleeced them of their money. It's, it's, it's yeah, cruel it's times. Awful. That yeah. would, would take money to, you know, find your husband yeah. and then Just ditch it. Nothing. Because there were these women, like you say, who... Um, during World War One, who had jobs for the first time yeah. because the men were all away fighting. And so they had money. So you had these young, unmarried women mm -hmm. that were financially independent for the first time. Then after the war, yeah. they sort of lost that those rights, you know, yeah. initially. And so this left them vulnerable because they were now looking for husbands, but they had this money. So they were vulnerable to being charmed by con men, yeah. robbed of the money that they'd saved because they knew they had this money. Yeah. And so these female detectives were, were working on these cases as well to follow these con artists, bring them to justice. So there were, you know, yeah, that's interesting. They were doing good work as well. The cons went, the, the, the cons went both ways, of course. So men could yes, be fined considerable amounts for breach of contract to marry. Uh, still illegal, yeah, yep. and there are also women who could induce a man to make a promise of marriage he suddenly he couldn't keep, uh, so that she could take him to court. So yeah, exactly. So yeah, breach of promise to marry was uh, punishable by fines. I think so. If you could get a man to agree to marry you and then make it so he definitely couldn't then you could take him to court Lovely. and, you know, there yeah. were lots of... Um, the detective work wasn't always what we might think of moral by our standards. There's at least one case in the book uh, where there's a, a man, I can't remember his name, but it is in the book, but he becomes besotted with this American actress, Constance Ryland. Oh, right. And uh, he hires Maud West basically to help him stalk her. So Maud West's job was wow. to let this man know where this actress was at all time. Oh so he could turn up and or send flowers everywhere she went wow. or just be a bit of a nuisance. I mean, I don't think he actually ever harmed her. Yeah, or, but creepy. You know, but really creepy. And Maud West was quite happy to take his money God. to, and to she, enable she, she, that. She talked you know, about it openly. Stalking. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, so, yeah that yeah. was in her records that that was her job, you know. Yeah. And then um, a private detective might be hired to find missing persons. Uh, yeah. Although that again wasn't always positive because sometimes it would be to return wives who fled an abusive or unhappy marriage. So yeah, there was this really interesting sort of phenomenon at the time: a big fear of of innocent white women being duped by these sort of swarthy foreigners uh, into a life of what was called white slavery in these South American brothels. Wow. Right. So these dark foreigners would come over, steal your women, and and obviously, I mean, whether that did go on, I don't think it went on at um, all. I think this no. is like a uh, what it was. Yeah. It was pure xenophobia. Yeah, yeah. It was often it was women who had chosen to elope with these foreigners. You know, yeah. coming over here, taking our women, not having that. Yeah. Uh, and the, these stories of what then happened to them were fueled by nothing really. Other racism. Uh, but racism and xenophobia yeah. and this whole and idea as well. of this. 
and misogyny. And, misogyny. Yeah. and and there was, you know, the League of Nations got involved at one point, you know, about this sort of women trafficking thing yeah. that they said was going on. And really it was just part of threatened men putting women in their yeah. place. They yeah. didn't like women having agency to go off yeah. with foreign men or to, to choose who they went with. Yeah. Um, you know, so a lot of this fear that was really whipped up and there were a lot of women, you know, yeah. uh, women in society that were um, uh, sort of fighting a, a against this happening that wasn't really happening. I mean, I'm not saying there wasn't sex trafficking in the 20th century no. or the 19th century, no. but it wasn't, it wasn't upper, quite the scale. It wasn't upper middle class women being taken to South America by no. swarthy men, you know. No, exactly. It was, <laughs> yeah. yeah, orphan children. Yeah, it, was a, and, it was the weakest yeah, in society. There was a different, yeah. Exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, some other areas where female detectives were employed, not related to marriage. So uh -huh. I was talking to my friend Lisa Evans, who writes sort of historical fiction. And she was saying blackmail was a massive issue in the in the oh, early yeah. 20th century. And, uh, you know, that because so many people, there was so much prudery and so many moral standards and homosexuality mm. was illegal and, you know, adultery was so frowned upon. Loads of people were being blackmailed. And, um, you know, it's one of the sort of biggest crimes in terms of statistics. And this is another place for uh, someone like Maud to come in, I suppose. Absolutely. If you were, you know, a maid in a big house and you got wind of something that your betters yeah. were up to. Yes. Of course, the, the, you know, you're living on nothing. Of course, the temptation to go, well, I'm going to tell them what I heard you say right. if you don't give me some money or yeah. whatever. Of course, that temptation's there. Yeah, right? yeah. And, and at a time, like you say, you've got this leftover Victorian moral code at the time. Yeah. It's really strong. Um, there was one story uh, that I read about Maud's where there was some grand house somewhere and the there had been word that one of the maids was blackmailing the man of the house. Right. And they had um, a suspicion which maid it was, but no proof. Right. And so you can't go to the police with something like no. this because then the newspapers are going to report on it, yeah. right? So Maud was hired to find out which. which of the maids was responsible so they could get rid of him. Wow. And she did it by, she posed as a, a clairvoyant, right? And wow. started advertising locally uh, these readings, like really cheap readings that we should do. And in this big house, lots of the young women who worked there were going and getting their fortunes told. And eventually the girl that was a suspect also went along to get her fortune told. And of course, what Maud is then there dressed as a yeah. fortune teller, you know, in her disguise. Cross my palm with a... silver pretty lady. Exactly. And of course she starts frightening this woman because she's telling her things about her that she knows. Wow. And this woman, and eventually just gets a confession That's out hilarious. of That's hilarious. That's so clever. <laughs> what she'd done, you know, and then he's like, ha! Gotcha. Wow. Uh, now we know it was you. And it turned out it was this woman's boyfriend who'd sort of egged oh, her on. Oh, wow. To, it's always the men. It's always it. the men, actually. Always the men. Um, you know. That's so, amazing. So, but yeah. it must have involved a lot of boring, bloody uh, uh, palm reading before she got to the right maid. I mean, can you imagine? Oh, all... I bet she had fun with that, though. That's fun, isn't it? Just, Just load, get a load of. Talking a load of bullshit. Oh, you're going to yeah. die on You're gonna die on Thursday. Yeah, oh, no. <laughs> might, might as well do what you like in between. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, God. Yeah. When I was uh, when yeah. I was first in love at the age of like eighteen, me and my girlfriend we're down in Torquay, and we're and we both went in separately for a ta uh, for um, palm reading for a laugh, oh. and she, the woman said to both of us, "I see an unwanted pregnancy." Oh and, God! And we were like, oh, fuck. <laughs> That's going to kill oh, a dirty but, weekend. But, off. But what I realised was she was just providing a public service, which was like yeah. YouTube just started <laughs> fucking like rabbits. And where are Johnny for God's sake? Yeah, it was like yeah. I bet she did that to Good every lady. every young sort of teenage sort of boyfriend and girlfriend. It's like there's going to be a and I was going, we're both going shit. Good on her. Yeah, I know. She probably prevented a load. She of did. She probably did. She probably like, did. Good on her. 
<laughs> so we're talking about blackmail, and this was also yeah. a problem for homosexual people, wasn't it? I like the way you put homosexual so. people in your notes. And you're like, well, because it was men and women. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it was. Yes. Um, yeah. If you were homosexual, although you know, female homosexuality. I mean, didn't exist. It, didn't exist. Victoria, who famously just didn't believe it was a thing. thing. So they weren't quite as vulnerable yeah. as. as uh, but they were gay men. They were terrified of being exposed, weren't they? Of course. Of course, because it was illegal. Yeah. And they could be imprisoned or, you know, awful things happen to them. Yeah. And then after World War One, yeah. um, there was an increase again in blackmail cases because these potential blackmailers had another string to their bow. Because at that time, after World during and after World War One, as we know by the way that they treated conscientious objectors and so on, cowardice was seen as you know it, it was really the worst thing you could be seen to right. be was a Running coward if you were yeah. a pacifist or even if yeah. you were just scared and frightened you were supposed to bravely go over the top and yeah. do your bit you know um, and so if you'd been anything other than a hundred percent brave as a man during the war yeah. be that while you were at the front you know if yeah. you run the wrong way or just anything if there was anything on your record that suggested you had any slight bit of cowardice you could be threatened with blackmail of having that exposed yes that's that's terrifying i mean there's poor men they probably had shell shock or you know it might oh have my been, god yeah. i mean there were Just, kids as well so to be sort of if, 19 if, you know and suddenly terrified the shell blown off in your trench no wonder you might be sort of stunned or anything but your reputation exactly. could be ruined wouldn't it exactly because you weren't allowed you yeah. know it wasn't like now where we know that soldiers have ptsd if you have ptsd that you was you yeah. know showing signs of like say shell shock or whatever yeah. then you were a coward yeah. you know it was just, the brutality didn't end in 1918 no, you know, these poor really. men during that yeah. period yeah. It, it really carried on yeah so, um, so private investigators be brought in to see off blackmailers as an alternative to the course of course as you said yeah. it all got in the papers until 1925 newspapers were allowed to print full details of blackmailing even if it was like oh we've caught the blackmailer we're looking up here's the stuff he was trying to put in the public domain prints exactly. the daily mail on pages two to 25 exactly. so yeah that's uh that's a bit 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 of a flaw in the law so they they changed that yeah. after 1925 um yeah. so whatever it was you were keeping quiet would come out anyway so that's why people went to private detectives and another another yeah. means to see off a blackmailer exactly and kate easton she wrote um about that other lady detective yeah. she wrote about this and she said how part of her job was blackmailing blackmailers yeah. um, oh, wow. and she explained once she talked about this case she called the terror of the tea rooms which was this professional seductress who would pick up victims over afternoon tea you know wow. like married men or whatever and, uh, and Kate Easton just wrote her a polite note giving her a choice because she'd been stalking her she'd been shadowing her right. and this woman hadn't realised Kate Easton had been watching her so she'd done it successfully you know and she just wrote her a note saying you have a choice you either leave the country wow. or I'm going to make sure you're shadowed constantly by detectives who will warn everyone that you talk to what your intentions are and she left by the next boat wow that's amazing so you yeah. know they, they sort of took the law into their own hands really when it came to blackmailing wow um, yeah. these detectives and, yeah. and, and uh, so what else were these lady detectives detecting so there's, I mean, there's so many fascinating things, but this one really sort of got my, so spiritualism began to be really popular at the end of the 19th yes. century. This idea, you know, spiritualist churches and organisations yes. sprung up. Uh, Conan Doyle was a, a big believer in yeah. spiritualism and was a spiritualist. And there were some people who genuinely were believers, but obviously the whole movement opened the door really to a lot of charlatans and con artists who yes, absolutely. Would prey on vulnerable, bereaved people are you know never. of course that can never happen never today, today. No, no. no never and um, there's this sort of wonderful episode that Maud 
talks about in this interview from the Sunday Post in 1926. And I actually, because um, I recently got myself a, a membership to the British Newspaper Art, uh, Archive. Oh, so fantastic. I downloaded the actual, oh, great. it's brilliant. Uh, you know, I've been looking at Maud West yeah. articles a lot because they're so, all in so there. I read the whole piece? Um, yeah, well, I'll give it to you because it's just this. She's talking about how she is planning to expose a spiritualist fraudster. Right, so give it a read, John. Right. This, is the, this is the extract from the paper. Revolver shot at a seance. Lady detective to shoot spirit. London, Saturday. A revolver shot will ring out at a spiritualist seance shortly to be held in a part of London, which, for obvious reasons, is not indicated. The firer will be Miss Maud West, London's intrepid lady detective. She has been invited to attend the seance, the time and place of which are yet unknown to her, in order to test in this dramatic fashion whether or not the ghostly figure is in reality spirit. I shall not shoot to kill, Miss West confessed to the Sunday Post, but my shot will be accurate enough to prove the point at issue. I can shoot straight. I have proved that on more than one occasion during my many years of detective work. I am glad to say that I have never fired with fatal effect, though this does not mean that I have missed my aim. This experience will be the most remarkable in the whole of my career, and there can be few women who have packed more excitement and adventure into their lives. Miss West's experiences have taught her to be prepared for any emergency, and she early discovered that an essential accomplishment of a lady detective was to be a proficient revolver shot. By dint of much practice, she has become one of the best lady shots in the country. I mean... <laughs> Brilliant. There's absolutely no evidence that this happened. She's just but she the did best it. It's just publicity. I bet she was actually a bit so unbearable, good. to be honest. I mean, she my, must have oh, been. Oh, probably. I mean, the idea that she's written this about herself, you know. Yeah. It's like, I mean, my, my favourite bit about this article is when you look at it, that there's a pic photograph that she's obviously supplied to go with the article. And it's a picture of her, for no apparent reason, disguised as Charlie Chaplin. Right. Why not? Why not? Because if Why you want to be. Just to show that she can, if you, you know, keep a low, disguise. keep a low profile, be the most famous film star <laughs> in the world. <laughs> it's 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 just incredible and I I just you know but the other side of that is that the detectives were out there exposing these spiritualist frauds so yeah. actually you know while she's telling these amazing elaborate stories they are out there doing but, that which but, is a good thing but you know by dint of max practice she's become one of the best lady shots in the country says no evidence says, for that at says, all says Maud Maud West yes, exactly yeah. according to Maud according West according to herself. me yeah these female detectives then um, many of them started their career in a much more sort of mundane way than shooting right. spirits in <laughs> or, or yeah. you know, trailing black men as well. A lot of them started their careers as store detectives. Of course, because you, you had the rise of the department store. You did. And the, 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 and where the term kleptomania had been coined. Uh, your notes say it's coined in the ninth century. Yeah, that should say 19th. That's a typo. You know, Alfred the Great. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't burn the cakes. He still stole the cakes. <laughs> 19th century. That's a typo. And uh, uh, yeah, yeah, so uh, kleptomania, the term was used quite often in conjunction with uh, more well-to-do ladies, shall we say, who might yeah. steal for no apparent reason. Apart from the fact yeah. they were bored out of their heads because they were not well, allowed yes, to do anything. Quite. Just get a bit of fucking excitement get, in their poor agency. mundane lives. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, so it's thought to be some sort of like, congenital criminality or linked to some kind of sexual deficiency. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, I'm glad Everything we linked to bloody Freud. That's so much to answer for. Aren't you glad you live now, Angela? Bloody hell. Oh, uh, my God. God. Yeah. Uh, but as the, uh, as the era of department stores grew, so did Nick and Stuff. 
And um, yeah. and it wasn't just bored middle class ladies. It was uh, John's uh, daughter Lily when she was thirteen. I had to go and pick her up. Oh, from Primark. poor Lily! Don't expose her. I had to go down to Primark get the whole bloody all her friends. Like she was th- twelve or thirteen. Jackie said they want to go up the West End. They're quite young. I went, oh, I'll be all right. It'll be all right. <laughs> Sit at my desk. Primark call up from Oxford Street. Yeah, we've got six girls in the basement. And I, oh. I went up there, all of them, their mascara and running down their cheeks with tears. And the, and the, but they never did it the, again. The bloke, the bloke had said to them, did you want to go to university? That's not happening now. Did you want to travel abroad? You'll never have a passport. You won't be allowed. And this, I, I go into this basement where Lily's crying. She goes, I'm so sorry, Daddy. You can hit me if you want to. <laughs> I said, Lily, I'm not going to hit you. What the hell are you talking about? I was most pissed off that I'd lost a day's writing. And then oh. um, Jackie comes out of her, she was uh, doing a, a master's at the time. She comes out of her tutorial, 18 missed calls. <laughs> it's like, it's from me. Oh, <laughs> it's like, yes, God. but uh, so Lily is banned for life from Primark Oxford Street. Every time we go oh. past it, I point it out to her. I was like, well, you're not going in there, Lily, a bloody old fingers, fingers O'Farrell. It's such a common thing for <laughs> young yeah. women. I, I never did it because I think I was so frightened of being caught something like that but I know a lot of young women who did and and often I think the ones that are actually quite yeah like you say not well up but comfortable you know they weren't nicking things yeah. because they didn't have them they were just a thrill it was just a thrill yeah a thrill yeah and it's a part and I think you know sometimes teenage girls egg each other on yeah, yeah. I can remember once and I won't mention her name but there was a friend of mine at school and she got caught basically she uh nicked something from I think it was Marks and Spencers I might be wrong British Home Store something like that I think she was doing it by going into um like fitting rooms and trying on stuff and then coming out wearing the stuff. I think it's before lots of security tags and things like that. And um, a f- someone who knew her mum was working there and had yeah. caught her doing it. And so they, um, she didn't get caught at the time, but this woman went and phoned her mum and told her what she'd been up to. And that night I was in a, we were about 17. So we were underage in this, in this nightclub in, in Maidstone watching a band. Wow. And I turned around and I saw her dad. Wow. And I was like, you're, I need to say her name then. I won't say her name. I was like, your dad's here. And her dad was quite a scary dad. Wow. Quite yeah. a sort of, you know. And he just came in and he just, like in front of all our friends in this nightclub, he was 17, just grabbed her by the arm, dragged her out of this. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, it was awful. It was awful. But teenage girls do it, you know. It's a thing. Not if Maud West is there as a store detective. So when Selfridges opens in 1909, yeah. um, they set up a, they called it the Selfridges Secret Service, uh, which was yep. a team of store detectives headed by a woman called Matilda Mitchell. And uh, yep. uh, most of her detectives were women, often ones that had worked in the store before, like behind the counters or whatever. And their job was to be on the floor, you know, looking for shoplifters. And back then, of course, with a big sort of uh, uh, fulsome skirts, uh, you know, voluminous skirts, shoplifters delight, isn't it? You could, uh, the, yeah. the thieves could sh- Shove the loot into specially adapted underwear, pockets and hooks, known as grafters bloomers. I'm yeah, wearing some was, of those I mean, at the moment. I, they're very fetching, they look too, John. But I think you're supposed to wear them under your trousers. Um, there was one example was I really made me smile for that. It was this 23-year-old, Matilda Greenberg. Uh, and she she got caught because her suspiciously bulky appearance. Yep. She was in Whiteley's department store in 1904 and it was found to be caused by 65 yards of satin still on the roll. Wow, that's impressive. And she like, shoved <laughs> into her skirt. That's impressive, still that's on the mad. roll. Yeah. yeah. And then you'd have whole gangs of thieves, <laughs> wouldn't you, operating in these stores. Yeah. There's one of them called 40 Elephants, which is a great name. <laughs> 
come into his store and caused such a big old rumpus, I suppose like 40 elephants. And meanwhile, yeah. their accomplices took advantage of the store detectives being busy and slip all sorts into their pockets and drawers or whatever. So that's a, yeah, that's a classic exactly. technique, isn't it? Yeah. I was with Jackie once and a glass smashed on the other side of the pub. And everyone got up and looked at what that smash was. And we, by the time, five minutes later, we realised someone had taken Jackie's camera from her open handbag. And it was like... It was yeah. for our benefit, that smash glass. Thanks, mate. Yeah. You know, it's so. such classic. Yeah. I had it happen to me on Oxford Street. And weirdly, I had about two weeks before, I'd watched a documentary about shoplifting. Oh, really? Uh, sorry, pickpocketing. Oh, yeah. And I was walking down Oxford Street and I had my handbag. Mm-hmm. And this guy did something to me that I'd seen on this documentary. Oh, no. And if I hadn't, I would have... Because he just went, oh, you've dropped your scarf. And just showed me a scarf that wasn't mine. Wow. And... I just kept walking because I'd Good for seen you. that Good for you. as a thing. Yeah. But if I hadn't watched that documentary, I probably would have stopped and gone, oh, that's not what I would have had it. looked at it or whatever. Meanwhile, someone else has God. got your bag, you know. Blimey. Um, so Maud wouldn't have fallen yeah. for that. Maud, I know Maud. She would, no. she would have said, I am the best scarf in the whole, best scarf <laughs> in the whole world. And I did it dressed as Genghis Khan. <laughs> <laughs> so... So this is Matilda Mitchell. She talks about these professional shoplifters. Uh, the professional shoplifter of the lower class is not an easy person to arrest. I've even known them to carry scissors to stab the arm with or pepper to throw in the eyes. So it wasn't an easy job being a store detective. And of course, John, it wasn't just lady thieves that were causing disruptions oh, in the 1900s, no, it's these, was it? These nuisance suffragettes. Step forward, Emily oh. Pankhurst and her daughters, Christabel and Sylvia. And they formed the Women's Social and Political Union known to us as the suffragettes. And they were causing all That's sorts right. of problems. They were. We've done a podcast about this as well. We did the, it was the anti-suffrage podcast. Well, it's much, we did, but much better angle. Not, not getting yeah. over That's <laughs> John's, John's chosen angle. Um, <laughs> but the suffragettes were distinct from the more peaceful suffragists. Yes. So you had Millicent Fawcett and yeah. all of those people were you know, peaceful protesters and yeah. trying to do it through political discourse, etc. Whereas the WSPU, they their aim was to cause disruption yes. through civil unrest, damaging property. Yeah whatever and you know there was a lot of women were against this particular action they yeah. felt that it wasn't you know particularly becoming of a lady to behave that way and that actually it was damaging their cause it, to, to have this behavior yeah um so Maud West had certainly we know she had been employed to sort of dress up and blend in with guests at these high society parties that might be vulnerable to an ambush by suffragettes. So it, it, she would be employed to sort of protect the property from suffragettes. She would be employed to go to empty country houses. So quite often suffragettes would target, they would burn down empty houses and buildings right. that belonged right. to uh, yes. rich people. Um, so she would reside in them while the owners were away and it's things like, like that. It's like guardian, guardian occupation. It's like there's empty places in London yeah. full of students. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. So in 1913, yeah, the Cat and Mouse Act was introduced where hunger-striking yeah. suffragettes could be released from prison so they didn't become martyrs and then they'd be re-arrested yeah. once they recovered fitness. These yeah. women would often take on disguises uh, or other means to avoid recapture. And lady detectives may be employed to help locate these hiding suffragettes that's uh, exactly so they're on the wrong side of history um, there aren't they really yeah i mean in 1914 there was a report in the daily mirror that said that scotland yard was using female private detectives at the house of commons right and they would sit in the ladies gallery during contentious debates ready to pounce on any suffragette intruders that before they could make a scene wow. there were no records uh, of payments to these women at the time but it's thought that they might have been paid under false male names so they wouldn't be discovered who they were okay uh, because they were obviously working undercover. Um, Kate Easton, yep, the other one. sort of famous uh, ladies 
detective. We know she was a suffragist. We know that she supported the cause of votes for women. We don't really know what Maud's opinions were. She didn't really talk about that. We do know um, she possibly was a suffragist because we find out later it's likely that in her position she would have supported those rights. Right. You know, she was a main breadwinner in her house. We'll come on to that later. She would have been a property owner, you know, all those yeah. things. But she was willing to take money from rich clients to protect them from the suffragettes. Wow. And there even appears to be a time when she gave names to the press of sort of high society women that had been found to be secretly donating money to wow. the WSPU okay. and, and subscribed to that. So she was quite happy to out them. Wow. You know, so yeah. while she may have been a suffragist, she obviously was, yeah. uh, you know, not a suffragette. Not, not principled. No. I think this yeah. is a good time to take a little break. John, I know you've got that blackmail letter to write. I have. And uh, I'm going to pop a disguise, find out what I did with that orange peel. <laughs> that up the face. We'll catch you in a minute. Welcome back. We're discussing lady detectives and what they got up to in the early 1900s. So World War One coming along must have had an effect on the work of female detectoresses. Yeah, I couldn't resist putting that in the notes for you to say, like female lady detectoresses. That's what I would call them. No, um, it did. World War One had a big effect on their work, uh, not always in the most sort of moral of ways. So both Maud West and Kate Easton yeah. saw a bit of an opportunity to make money from military men who were abroad right. fighting as if these poor men, like we said, haven't enough. got enough on their plate. Yeah. They both put adverts in uh, publications that were for servicemen in, in Europe that sort of planted the seeds in the minds of these men that were away from home fighting about what their sweethearts at home might be getting up to and offering their services as lovely lady detectives wow. to keep an eye on their loved ones back home, you know, find out, what what they'd been up to and and Maud's advert it was particularly sort of very emotionally manipulative wow. manipulative sort of done in this really sort of maternal tone you know don't you while you're abroad I'll sort things out back wow. here yeah. you know I'll see what you're I'll check she's not up to anything that you think she might be you know yeah, so yeah whew. that's grim there was also at that point a lot of concern about German spies on British soil Maud West, just, just am I right in thinking she talks about or claims to have foiled German spy rings. This is brilliant. I love this. So I'll tell you one of the stories that she tells, and there are several, uh, about German spies, uh, World War One type. So one of the stories goes like this. So Maud is trying to have a much needed holiday, very busy woman, yeah, you know, running yeah. her own detective agency. So she goes to Norfolk. I think it was Cromer, somewhere like that. Right. She goes on holiday. And uh, but while there, she wasn't allowed to relax because she was recruited on some very important government work. Right. So instead of relaxing, she's keeping close watch on these various buildings in Norfolk before eventually selecting, in her words, a well-known mental home that she decided was suspicious. So she's selected it for closer examination. So she managed to get herself admitted to this mental home as a patient suffering from the strain of war work. Okay. Right? So this is what she writes. She said, after being there a few days, I noticed that the doctor in charge was certainly not the type of man who should have nervous cases under his care. By that, she means, A, he was foreign. <laughs> okay. And B, he was prone to these angry outbursts, right, that she observed they only occurred when the patients were upstairs. So she says, I was forced to the conclusion that something up there was causing him anxiety. Now, the top floor was out of bounds to patients, but she managed to creep upstairs in the early hours of the morning. And she goes to the door of the room facing the seafront. She says, I brought out a special key. Doesn't say what that is okay. or how she's got okay. it, but a special key. With a feeling of satisfaction, I felt the levers of the lock slip back. Okay, she opened the door. Cautiously, 
Shut the door. <laughs> Cautiously opening the door, I found the room in comparative darkness, but the friendly light of the moon revealed all I wanted to see. There, on a long bench, was an ingeniously camouflaged and completely equipped wireless transmitter and receiving set. And so she says she tiptoed out of the building to report her discovery and she stayed to watch as the doctor and his chief assistant were bundled quietly into a car and whisked away into custody. And of course, John, it was all utter bollocks. So she's actually, a, she's actually, <laughs> do you think, a bit of a fantasist? A bit of a fantasist, I think, I mean, a bit of a, you know, maybe part of it was just advertising. Oh, I bet it was, you know, yeah. For her services. Yeah, I suppose that's, you know, yeah, was, she was talked about as the greatest detective yeah. and she was in the tabloids all the time. If you needed a detective, who are you going to go to? The one you've read about yeah. doing these amazing things, right? right. right? It's sort of it's got yeah. a touch of Jeffrey Archer about it. It's just like, yeah. It's, yeah. it's amazing. <laughs> So, yeah. as Susanna Stepton points out, there's a little thing called the Official Secrets Act. And if she hadn't covered yeah. a load of spies, then she wouldn't have been putting it in Pearson's Weekly or whatever. Exactly, exactly. And the thing she was cutting on as well, spy mania was rife. Yeah. And there were writers like there was William LeCue. Uh, they were really stoking this scaremongering, yeah. you know, that these spies were living among us, that they were everywhere, that they were planning a sort of invasion from within. Yeah. Um, you know, that he would write stories about these German military installations that were already in Britain. And paranoia was rife. Yeah, but in yeah. reality, yeah. very few spies were found in Britain at all at the time. I think there were only 31 were captured on British soil between 1914 and 1917. Okay. But I'm guessing, well, well, one did change things for women detectives, though. I mean, during the war, yeah. women were having to take on all sorts of roles that have been previously unthinkable for a woman because so many mm. men being conscripted and probably sent to their death. Um, but mm. um, policing, that wasn't one that was initially considered women's work. Am I right? That's right. I mean, Maud, she did have a good relationship with the police. In, uh, she said in 1914, she said, do I find much jealousy or hindrance on the part of the regular police force or the CID department? No. Oh, no, not at all. On the contrary, they're always very good to me. But in return, I'm always careful never to bring up a police officer as a witness or drag his name into a case. So she had a working relationship with them. And I think she probably helped them out occasionally, you know, on things that they weren't allowed to do. Right. She could get away with, you know. Yes. Um, of course, there's one area of policing where eventually women would be deployed. Yes, John. Oh, this good is, old vice. The dirty bit. The dirty <laughs> this is what the listeners so, have been waiting for, Angela. Let's be honest. Uh, well, again... Like we said before, you know, we're living at a time where we have these sort of high Victorian moral standards, yes. which were very much a, a, a middle upper class thing. Working classes were sort of doing what they liked, yeah, yeah. you know, and always had been really yeah. throughout that time. But at the war, there, there was a thing they call it khaki fever, where there were the, a lot of men as they returned from war, you know, having seen horrific things. There was a lot of immoral things going on at the time. So there were women who were really into soldiers, like really... Right the whole bravery, the whole, right, because yeah. of the propaganda they were seeing, you know, these brave men yes. that fight for their country, whatever, be... women wanted a bit of that. Yeah. And and so they would meet these um, men coming back from the front, you know, meet them at train stations. Waterloo became known as Hortaloo. Hortaloo, and I see what they did there. This was happening all over the country that returning servicemen, women were having, yeah. you know, sex with them in parks or whatever. And it was just a big, Thing that was seen to be quite scandalous, a signal of a nation in, in moral decline. Right. So there was a, a several things were set up. There was one woman in particular, Margaret Damer Dawson, her and a group of ex-militant suffragettes, because the, the suffragettes sort of piped down a bit during World War Two. There yes. were other World things War going World on, War I, you know. Yeah. Well, World War One, sorry, yeah. there were other things going on. So she set up this military-inspired volunteer force called the Women Police Volunteers, and they were these feminists 
whose idea it was was to eventually they thought if we do this as volunteers eventually we'll be eased into sort of permanent police work for women and uh, she then broke away Dama Dawson from the WPV she created the Women's Police Service and between them they trained thousands of these volunteers who spread out across towns and cities in the hope that their just their presence in parks and train stations or whatever would curb these nocturnal goings a sort of cock block patrol well, that's what they said on like. badges um, that's what, yes, exactly. Patrol. Cock block patrol. Wow. Yeah. So that's a weird yeah. thing to do, isn't it? I'm going to wander around yeah. and sort of discourage um, um, uh, yeah. sex workers at night. They would then give evidence in court about what they'd seen. And of course, some of the things that these women would see would be uh, gay men, of uh, you know, uh, soliciting yeah. or whatever. And so it was felt that it was, you know, these poor women having to witness that actually it was very morally unhealthy for them. And was this a good idea that women should be doing this work, you know, forced to talk about it in courts when they gave evidence and things like that. So, But they got some official yeah. recognition, didn't they, in August of 1915. Yeah. Edith Smith, a 35-year-old former midwife and WPS volunteer, was sworn in as Britain's first female police constable. Her remit was addressed the problems of promiscuity surrounding the army camp at Belton Park in Lincolnshire. Blimey. Absolutely. So there was, you know, they were allowed in as long as they were just dealing with the, these, yeah, you know, yeah. vice, basically. And then in 1918, you had uh, Sir Neville McCready was the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. And he started sending women on the beat in London for the first time. He had uniforms supplied by Harrods. And again, their mission largely to control vice. So the police women had no powers of arrest, did they? Or, uh, you know, and they had poor terms of employment, short contracts, no pension. So it was a very sort of uh, yeah. uh, grudging sort of employment. Absolutely. Um, then in 1919, there was this piece of legislation, which is quite forward thinking for the time, really, uh, and came about because of the work that women had been doing yeah. during World War One. You know, they proved themselves yeah. in certain ways. Uh, and so it was the Sex Disqualification Removal Act, and it gave women the right to enter professions for which they'd previously been barred. So they could now qualify as solicitors, barristers, accountants, vets. They could serve as jurors. They could get university degrees. Um, but there were exceptions. Women, for example, couldn't work in the diplomatic service. Couldn't be stand-up um, comics. Oh God, no, no! no. And some yeah. people panel shows would still like you, it. That I mean, way. imagine oh, you'd have imagine back there. Imagine having all male panel shows. That's hard to imagine. I know it's unthinkable, <laughs> isn't it? Um, <laughs> and then in 1920, there was a committee was convened led by Sir John Baird of the Home Office yeah. to look into whether women should be accepted into police forces across the land. Usual arguments against it. Uh, what about their dainty little feet? Good point. You know what? He, if ma he makes a good point, weapons, Angela. What if their weapons were snatched from their teeny tiny hands and used against them? And, of course, what about the men that worked with them? How could they possibly be expected to control their manly desires when they've got women working with them, John? I'm, I'm, I'm hearing know? a lot of good arguments, is all I'm saying. Yeah. So, yeah. What, about, yeah, what about the poor male criminals? That's what I want to know. So one argument well, put forward, wasn't it, was completely genuine, was that nobody worth calling a man would allow himself to be forcibly conveyed to a police station by a woman. If she attempted to use force, he'd be morally bound to restrain her until the arrival of a male constable. So it's like the Absolutely. The, 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 the morality would be on the side of the criminal pinning down yeah. the woman for using a force. Yeah. Blimey. Yeah. The, the rights of the male criminal to be arrested by a man trumped the rights of a woman yeah, to, to arrest work. Him. Yeah. That's, you know, yeah. mad. Um, uh, and McCready, you know, who had recruited these female police officers, he warned, you know, your recruitment process would have to be thorough because yep. otherwise you could end up with a vinegary spinster or a blighted middle-aged fanatic. Absolutely. And you don't want that. You don't want that, no. Yeah, with that. I think I'm going to call my Edinburgh show the blighted middle-aged fanatic. The, vin like the that. vinegary can't be a vinegary spinster anymore because you got no. married. I know. I've ruined that now. Vin my vinegary, vinegary spinster married, days are vinegary over. Vinegary married woman. Fair enough. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> um, so this committee finally it did recommend that women between 
the age of 25 and 30 should be recruited to the police. 25 and 30, that's it. That's it. Uh, should be recruited to the police, albeit in a limited capacity, and that good training and pay were essential if they were to be effective. Uh, although when this recommendation was circulated to police forces, the Home Office did add a little note that said, sure, you should go ahead and hire women, but feel free to ignore the bit about giving them powers of arrest and paying them properly, because well, that's just madness. It's hard to imagine. Yeah, don't, don't worry about those recognitions. Can you imagine uh, a, a sexist police force today? I can, it's like... <laughs> Unthinkable, isn't it, John? 1922, McCready was replaced. He went off to take charge of um, British troops in Ireland or whatever. I mean, it must have been mm. the ones leaving Ireland or going to Northern Ireland or something, because mm. that's when... The, the free state came into existence and yeah. um, his uh, successor ordered immediate disbandment of the female patrols known as MacReady's Monsters. 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 Uh, Imagine mon that. Monstrous I mean, I yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, but then another inquiry happened in 1924, the Bridgman Inquiry, and that reinforced Baird's conclusions. And I think I, I think a lot of it probably, you know, was based on the fact that there was a dearth of young men yeah. to have to do these jobs. Yeah. You know, someone had to go out on the beat and um, yeah. I'm sure that played a part in them actually then reversing the decision. He also recommended that women be admitted as plainclothes detectives for the first time as well, at the discretion of each force. Wow. But now women were able to be official detectives within police forces, so that's a, private that's a, that's a big change. So when Maud was asked about her opinion on this development, she mm. said, I think that some women are admirably fitted for detective work, i.e. me. I employ women in every investigation requiring subtlety, craft, guesswork, diplomatic conversation or plain common sense. Yeah. So, of course, Maud was very pro-women as detectives. She knew, like you said before, they could blend in. Yeah. They, uh, you know, had certain skills that men maybe didn't possess. And she'd been employing female detectives for years. And by all, the accounts in, in the book that I read, she was very fair to her staff. It seems she good. paid for them to have phones to be installed in their homes so she could reach them. You know, yeah. that was quite unusual to have a phone in your home yeah. in the 1920s and 30s. They had a weekly salary, uh, but they'd only be called in if case required it. So they would still get paid, okay. but they'd be sort of on call. So when things were slack in the office, they could read a book or knit or so, as long as they were ready to act as soon as a call came in. Yeah. And uh, her detectives, they were started on around £5 a week, which uh, compared to a shop assistant at the time would get about £2 a week. So it was a good job for a woman to do. They had to pass a strict vetting and training programme, didn't they? Anyone with a limp or a lisp, they were rejected out of hand. Yeah. She needed people that could blend in unnoticed. Redheads had to dye their hair. So you'd be in trouble, Barnsley. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know how to break this to you, John. Not my natural hair colour. No. Uh, my, yeah, my dad wasn't a fraggle. He, he it's, wasn't. It's all from a bottle, John. He wasn't, no. Uh, <laughs> so she she would charge a training fee for her recruits, but it would be returned to them if it didn't work out. Minus expenses, but she would, right. you know. Um, so people would invest in working with her. Yeah to get their training and she would set these tests for her pupils and one of them I really liked so one of the first things she would do is get them to shadow her and so she'd say right I'm going to meet you at such and such a time at this department store right but I want you to follow me today and when I meet you later I want you to tell me where I've been and what I've been doing okay yeah, so that's good yeah that's good fun quite, yeah these little tests that she would yeah, do okay. yeah okay so Maud took on other work didn't she alongside her detective work in the 30s she did later yeah she became a councillor a local councillor representing yeah. the municipal reform party a conservative yeah. allied anti-socialist party in London. Boo. Yeah. Maud was a Tory, it's fair to say. Was she was um, a businesswoman, yeah. uh, you know, anti-socialist part of that, yeah. you know. And like I say, she'd gone through with the suffragettes, you know, being very anti-militant action and that yeah. sort of. So that politically, that's where she... Right. I lay, really. I don't like um, her anymore. I, I don't like her anymore. And then as World War II was approaching, 
Maud West decides to shut up shop. Oh. Um, in 1939, she leaves her office in Albion House for the first time. She folds the business and uh, she lived till uh, March, uh, yeah, March 1964. Wow. She died. We overlap. Me and Maud overlap. Oh, look at that. That's yeah. crazy. So 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 who was she really then? Was she was she a real or was she a fantasy? Was it just like Well it's you know, again, read the book. Uh but Maud West definitely ran a detective agency and she did do detective work. That's all true. There were question marks over the veracity of a lot of her stories, obviously, a lot of the more dramatic ones. Yeah. Um, and Susanna Stapleton, who wrote this book, she really goes through a bit of a roller coaster with Maud. And that's why I've resisted going into too much detail about her as a person and right. her life. Because I sort of want to concentrate on the, what the female detectives out in the world were doing. Yeah. You know, and um, because we don't really think about women running businesses at that no. time. And they were. You know, and, and I think that if you are interested to find out more, read Susanna's book. Because she, she, like I said, is a detective herself uncovering Maud story. We can tell you that her name wasn't Maud West and that she didn't come from yeah. a family with ties to the law, as she'd said so many stories in interviews. So is that right to say exactly. that? Yeah, I mean, she was actually, you know, certain things, she was the illegitimate daughter of a domestic servant. That's the truth. Wow. Uh, so the fact that she made it to the position she did was quite remarkable, really. Her real name was Edith Barber um, and then Edith Elliot when she married Harry Elliot. Uh, so she was married. Right. Uh, Harry was apparently, I think, supportive of her work. It seems he was a bit of a sickly man, had gonorrhea amongst other ailments, okay. I think. Managed to sort of get out of doing too much in World War One. I, I think. Um, and together they had six children. Wow. And there were tragedy in the family. She lost two sons to suicide. Wow. But I, I do urge you to read the book because there's so many twists and turns and mysteries about Maud West and Edith Barber. You know, yeah. these two, this same woman. Um and who she really was and who she yeah. sort of portrayed herself to be. So the, the initial image of Maud West as Miss Marple type spinster doesn't really ring true, does it? As every night she'd leave her offices at Albion House, go back to her husband, house full of kids. But she yeah. did run a detective agency with lots of employees and at least two of her daughters went on to work for her at some point. It's unlikely there's much truth in her tales of foreign escapades, isn't it, really, and her near-death experiences. Yeah. But she was a good self-publicist and a teller of tales. So... That would be yeah. worth enjoying on that at that level, I suppose. Exactly. It's unlikely that, you know, she was leaving toddlers at home with her husband while she went off to, yeah. you know, Africa or whatever yeah. to chase. Uh, and uh, writing the notes for this episode is quite difficult because every time there's a juicy story in a book, it would end with Susanna Stapleton saying, of course, it was all completely untrue. So I've sort of tried to stick, stick to things that were factual, yeah. mostly. I've put in a couple of examples. Yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, that's fair enough. I mean, we're... her work and, and that of the female detectives of the time, I've tried to Yeah, we're a history podcast. Stick to that. And, uh, exactly. Yeah, so, but, but she, you know, that, but she has historical significance in that I suppose she has inspired detective writers, you know, at then and since, and since you know. Yeah, I mean, it's likely Agatha Christie would definitely have known who Maud West yeah. was. You know, she was in all the papers and, and they, they crossed over time-wise, you know. And in 1930, uh, there's a, a Maud was chairing a meeting of the Efficiency Club, okay. right, which was this club it's formed in 1919 by professional women, women in business, and their goal was networking. And they wanted women, their goal, main goal was to get women accepted into the British Chambers of Commerce, right. Right, which eventually they were. And they would hold these informal members meetings and there'd be, you know, talks, informal talks would be given. And there's one occasion where Dorothy L. Sayers was giving a talk um, and Maud was in the chair of that meeting. Okay, so, so her and Dorothy L. Sayers definitely met. Wow. We're in the same room. And, and Dorothy is quite famous, the talk she gave. It's called The Efficiency of Murder. Because um, efficiency was a bit of a buzzword at the time. It was the efficiency club. And uh, it, it had some links to sort of mental hygiene and eugenics. Right. Not, you know, which obviously not so good. But... Um, she gave this talk, which was a slightly tongue-in-cheek lecture on about how the most efficient murderer 
was George Smith of the Brides in the Bath Efficient, case. Okay. <laughs> right, she put forward this, yeah, because he, you know, I, I guess the method of murder was efficient in yeah. some way. And, and so she put forward this theory that the training of future killers, i.e. state-sanctioned ones, soldiers, whatever, right. spies, whatever, they, that they could put into practice these techniques that, that this, they could use convicted felons as uh, as the people to wow. you know to practice their techniques nice. on it. It's this sort of um, yeah, this theory that she put forward, slightly tongue in cheek, but there was this big protest in the room because there was a lady in the audience who was a member of the Howard League for Penal Reform yes. against capital punishment, and so there was the, they all kicked off at this meeting, and Maud was trying to they're trying to regain order, and um, but what this shows is she was in this room, she was in this room with Dorothy L. Sayers, so maybe she was the inspiration. Behind I'm sure she these, was. I'm sure she was. The golden yeah. age of detectives. Because they'd be looking, and as a writer of books, you know, you go through looking mm. for you, you. Now you go on Google and you search, you know, uh, JSTOR or whatever, but you go through the old papers looking for inspiration. So mm. these are the stories that these are the little bits of grit in the oyster that 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 turn into the pearls. So I'm sure she was, I'm sure she was uh, an inspiration for all these writers. She was definitely a character uh, worth hearing about. And I knew nothing Absolutely. about her until you uh, suggested we do it for this podcast. So I just saw this book and we instantly went, I want to read this. Raise a glass to yeah. Maud West and other female detectives. Um, and uh, how clever to realise that if people aren't taking a notice of you, you'll turn that to your advantage and and mm. um, make a career out of it. And she's a real advert for a bit of good PR. Good, but definitely a great self-publicist, yes. Yeah. <laughs> we can all learn. Absolutely. We can all learn from that. I'm going <laughs> to promote my next book by claiming to uncover a German spy ring. <laughs> brilliant <laughs> right. well thank you Angela for taking me through that world uh, thank, thank you, you listeners for uh, um, um, sticking with us through these yeah. of, uh, must be getting on for 70 podcasts now yeah we should count at some point we should count um, them all up Somebody, I think they might yeah, be count see what we've done with, uh, yeah. with, uh, Angela's managed to persuade me that we might do a live show at least one later this Can year we keep threatening it yeah. but I think we'll, we'll, we'll try and now. get at least one in I, yeah. I keep telling John that it's going to be alright we'll be on stage he's back to his trauma <laughs> being booed off you'll the all stage. be kind to him won't you he's a bit nervous about being on stage I was on John Blair's in the 80s it was hard <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah so thank you do uh, give us um, uh, five try see if you can get, get to give six stars nobody gets six stars so get a computer programmer <laughs> to override the system and give us six stars on iTunes or whatever other platform you listen to your podcast on we do love reading the reviews. It does give us a lovely little dopamine it, it here. It does. So, um, the... if you, and also helps get us up the rankings, which is the real reason. I'll take, what, I, um, I'll take any attention I can get these days, Angela. So that's, that's basically <laughs> it for me now. Really? And uh, yep. we, I'm going on holiday next week, John. Oh. So I will see you when I get Have back. Have a great for time. For our date at Operation Mincemeat. Fantastic. Oh, yeah, for our Valentine's yeah. date with my wife. Can't wait. It's all right. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. See you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.